We just finished a lengthy discussion with Governor Mike DeWine as he reviews the end of the year with editorial boards and reporters across the state. We'll have a bunch of stories coming on that, and we'll talk about one of the topics, the death penalty. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon, Chris Ranowski, and Laura Johnston. How are you all? Good. Good. Doing well. The midweek, the midweek verve is always so impressive. Let's begin. <laughs> How is Cleveland.com about to expand the right to be forgotten, which helps people move beyond the mistakes they made earlier in their lives? Chris Ranowski, I'm throwing this one on you, even though <laughs> I, I wrote the damn story. But this is a big deal, what was announced yesterday. Why? Right. And this is something that all of us that are on this podcast actually work on, you know, every month and, and every once in a while when we get these applications in. So, you know, we're, we're all qualified to talk about this, but it is actually a very, a very big moment for us. We, we actually received a $200,000 uh, grant from the Google GNI innovation challenge. Uh, we were uh, one of 33 projects chosen uh, from over 200 applications in the U S and Canada and, and Google announced all of its, uh, like about $6 million worth of funding on Tuesday, focusing on ideas and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we're going to use the money to sort of build tools to uh, proactively remove data content from, or dated content from our website that, that could be causing people, you know, grief because of things that happened a long time ago that really aren't worthy of preservation or, you know, or, you know, just not worthwhile to keep on our, on our website anymore. And, and, and so, you know, this is, this is really cool because we've all been sort of involved with this since its infancy and to see something like this grow is, is, is really neat. And, and, and I'm, I, I know I share my excitement with all of you in this. It's, it's really great. Well, and it's, this is a light year move because up until now to get something taken down, people have had to send us a request and explain what's going on. And then we get together and we consider it. We've done a couple of hundred probably over the past two years. But but we've had this nagging feeling that we're not reaching all the populations that could benefit from it. And and we want, you know, we've publicized it and we've done lots of things, but but we worry that the people that this could most benefit don't know to ask. And how might we systematically go in and do it? The other thing this does, and the reason Google favored it, is we do worry that because our police reporting over the decades has been based on what police tell us, that any bias police have in the way they do their jobs will be reflected in our archives. And it's, it's, it's as simple as this. If Let's take a burglary. Somebody kicks in your door, gets into your house, sees your home, runs away, doesn't take anything. So if you're white, do you get charged with vandalism? Do you get charged with criminal damaging because you kicked in the door? Whereas a black person might be charged with the felony burglary. We don't know, but there is clear evidence over the decades that police have discriminated against black criminals and black suspects. And if that's true, that would be reflected in our archives. So if we can go in and bubble up the stories that might be affected and clear out the universe of them, it might be helpful. There's challenges here. It's going to take some serious programming because if you think about it, if you tried to take what people were convicted of, 
then you might get the bias of prosecutors because they might make better plea deals with white defendants than black defendants. So that wouldn't be fair because the people might have committed the same kind of crimes. There's a lot of a lot of challenges in creating a computer program to identify the content that you talked about, Chris. Mm-hmm. But this this money, this funding for Google will get us there. I, 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 look, that's one of the proudest moments that I've had in this job. I think based on what we've all done together and we've gotten a ton of publicity, we are viewed as the national leader in what has become a social justice movement. The, the recognition here by Google is just a, a great thing. Right. And I mean, it's it, this is one of a couple of things that I think that and to be honest with you, I feel like, you know, I'm the crime and criminal justice editor here. And 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 I, I truly do feel like my my job and the goal of my job has changed since I started working here over six years ago. And I think I think this is a reflection of, I think, everyone's evolution in thinking on how how we cover crime, how we approach it, how we approach the historic biases that have existed within our industry forever. And I am happy that I, and, you know, I mean, I know I'm, I sound like I'm, you know, glowing, you know, with my, along with my boss here, but, but, but I mean, but I I mean, it really is, it, no, but I mean, it is, it, it, it is a proud moment for us, I think. And, and it's meaningful to me personally, just because, you know, my evolution on this, this job has changed, you know, has, I, I just, I think differently about how I approach this job and I, and I've tried to get our reporters to think that way. And, and I, and I think it means something and I hope, you know, I, I hope we can do better by the community and, and I hope that this works, you know, I hope this, this becomes something that, you know, we are known for, you know, forever that, that, that we were sort of a catalyst in the United States for moving the needle in the right direction. Yeah. I, I, and if we do this right, there'll be a tool that we create that should be usable in other newsrooms that want to do the same thing. Part of the problem with Right to Be Forgotten is it's a resource drain. I mean, mm-hmm. the number that we've handled, we can handle. But if it went up by fivefold, we wouldn't be able to handle it. So this is a great way of um, of going at it. So we'll have to see how it goes. We've got a lot of work to do in the next 12 months. But uh, very grateful to Google for the recognition and for the funding. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How many coronavirus vaccine doses does Ohio expect to have in hand by year's end? And what did a survey of 24,000 Cleveland.com readers find about the willingness to get that vaccine? Laura Johnston, the survey was actually kind of heartening. It was a positive thing. Yeah, absolutely. And so is the vaccine news in general. So by the new year, Ohio expects to have over a half million doses. Think about that. That's pretty impressive considering we were celebrating when the hospitals got like 975 uh, at one time just the last two days. So DeWine held this extra briefing on Tuesday to talk to people who are getting vaccinated. He emphasized that vaccines available at this point require the two doses. You have to get both. But he's talked up the big doses from Pfizer and the fact that we're supposed to get Moderna as soon as possible. So and obviously the first doses are going to those employees that work directly with COVID-19 patients. But then you have to ask the question, well, what about the rest of us? So we actually asked that question and this survey of more than 24,000 readers, 58% of respondents said they trust the vaccine enough to take it. It was an unscientific survey. We asked people who clicked on specific stories on cleveland.com. 37% of people say they trust their doctor's suggestions more so than the FDA emergency authorization. 
But 61% said they'd take it as soon as possible and as soon as it was available to them. 16% said they don't want to take it. It's a tough thing to persuade people who are nervous about it because there is something of a government history of of some shenanigans with vaccines. This is a new technology for the vaccine. But I think so many people are afraid of getting this virus and dying that they're willing to put that risk aside. It was a it was enlightening that 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 high a number is interested in doing it. It will make it just mean that we'll have to wait longer to get ours because everybody ahead of us in line is going to go ahead and get it. Well, and I think that's why DeWine has like had these extra briefings where he's showing people get vaccinated and he's talking to them because he wants people to see the process and he doesn't want it to be a mystery. But obviously there's still a lot of questions about this vaccine, including like who's going to be the next group of people to get it. Yeah, which which he doesn't know yet. And it's because a lot of groups are making the argument and they all have a good argument. So he's got a challenge ahead and setting that up. You got to figure at some point once they get through the people that have to be on the front lines, they'll have some kind of random draw that's based on birth date or. And then they'll take us and we'll just put it at the bottom. Right. (laughs) Okay, you're listening to this week in the CLE. Why does Nina Turner say she wants to replace Marsha Fudge in Congress? Jane Cahoon, as news people, we love interesting characters. We love people who say fiery things. We love a good story. Nina Turner's entrance into the race to replace Marsha Fudge as she takes over HUD gives us a character who says interesting things and makes stories interesting. This is pretty exciting. Why does she say she wants to do it? Well, she she noted when she she made this official on on Tuesday that, uh, you know, she's she's she grew up here. She raised her family here. She's got a history of service. The time's right. And uh, she said, what's special about this moment? The needs of the people are even greater from covid to people losing their health care to people being uninsured and the uncertainty of the future. And she said she thinks every step she's taken thus far in her career has prepared her for this particular moment in time to to be a voice and, and be that champion for people. She does have a, a solid public service record. You know, she started, um, she, she was a staffer, I believe, in the state legislature and worked in the Michael R. White administration. And then she eventually got elected to city council you know, became a state senator. And of course, now, you know, recently we all know about her involvement in uh, Bernie Sanders campaign and his cause, uh, the Our Revolution cause. And so uh, she's she's really, she has kind of built up to this moment. Now, she might not be the candidate of the party machine, and that's going to make this race even more interesting. Be, and, you know, she, she kind of said, uh, the beautiful thing about this race is there will be a primary. Uh, you know, she said Marsha Fudge certainly has a right to make known who she would like to see in the seat. However, the people in the district are going to have the final say. So that that's an interesting, you know, opening salvo there, considering that probably a dozen people are interested in this seat. And Chantel Brown, uh, Cuyahoga County Councilwoman uh, and Cuyahoga County Democratic Party head has already declared her intent to run, as well as Jeff Johnson, former city councilman. So we have some big names in there and, you know, uh, probably many others. Yeah. And that's what what I love about this is the Democratic Party isn't going to get the picket. I mean, you know, Chantel Brown, tell me one thing you can remember her doing as a county councilwoman. Uh, You know, and if if the if the party apparatus that she runs is used to to prop her up 
there that's not guaranteed because a Nina Turner is is a charismatic galvanizing force. So there, th- this is going to be a real choice. Democrats f- are going to have a choice. The difficult thing is, is if you want to have a say in this race, you're going to have to take a Democratic ballot, whether you're a Republican right. or Right, you got to vote in the you, primary because that's right. going to decide everything, thanks to gerrymandering, right? Right, which is a which is a difficult one um, uh, for people that that are Republican or like to be independent because you don't get a say unless you take that ballot. But I, this will be fiery. This will. I, the the thing about Nina Turner is she's going to say what needs to be said, and it's going to, I think, um, resonate with a whole lot of people that are not feeling the love of elected leaders today. There's a whole lot of poverty. It's worse than it's ever been. So what's been happening isn't working. There's a whole lot of violence in this district, and nobody's really done much to stop it. I can't wait for this to uh, to kick off. It's going to be a, a fun race. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are Cuyahoga County Council members so angry about with the people running the juvenile court? Chris Ranowski, I was kind of stunned that the county council would get angry about anything because so many things that should have outraged them that have been proposed by the Armand Budish administration, such as no bid contract after no bid contract, hasn't raised anything. But all of a sudden, they have their backs up on something. Why? Yeah. So the the council members on Tuesday kind of laid into the juvenile court system for proposing a last minute three year contract with a private health care provider to oversee the medical services for the children who are held at the juvenile detention center. But after, you know, after being critical and being angry and being showy about their anger, they went ahead and agreed to recommend the two year, three million dollar deal with Nashville-based Wellpath Incorporated with an option uh, on a third year and a provision allowing the county to end the contract with 30 days notice. The full council is expected to vote on the deal at Friday's year-end meeting. What made them so upset was the fact that Wellpath's contract landed in front of the committee two weeks before the current contract with university hospitals is set to expire. So what the committee members were mad about is they they had very little time to consider, you know, what their decision would would mean for the hundreds of children who are in custody with the county. And outgoing council president Dan Brady angrily compared the situation to a shotgun wedding, which I think is a a very <laughs> kind of kind of a humorous uh, comparison there, but um, you know, he he was upset, and I think you know, and and Michael Gallagher said that the council has had been placed, you know, with their backs against a two week wall, and and so, it, you know, it's it's interesting. You don't really see this kind of uh, pushback come out of the council these days. So you know, well, it, it's it's nice to see though. it, but then they went ahead and, and approved it. So they approved it, which means, but I don't think they had any choice. Yeah, but here's a question. If you're the council and you know it's your job to approve all the contracts in the county, don't you think you'd have a running list of when they expire so that you would never be surprised that you would have a staff member say, hey, you know, back in August, the, this this contract's going to expire at the end of the year. We haven't seen anything on this. Let's check with them to find out what the status is. I mean, it's great to sit back and go harumph, harumph in mid-December and say our backs are against the wall. But should they be against the wall? Do you have a duty to be more proactive in in keeping track of the contracts that are expiring in the county? 
Well, you Answer know, that one. You're, 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 <laughs> you know, we're, <laughs> see, we're seeing unprecedented criticism and that would require unprecedented organization. So, you know, that's <laughs> that's something we also have not seen out of this county government. So, you know, it's it's one of those things that it's a surprise, but not a surprise. And, and you're right. I you know, I maybe maybe it's unreasonable for a, a committee to, you know, everybody on a council committee to have a running list of it when every contract expires, but maybe the chair of the committee should, or maybe a staff member of one of the committee members should. I, I feel like if you're in in a position, in an elected position where you're being paid by taxpayers, you know, nothing should come as a surprise to you that, that, that some of this stuff should be known to you. But, you know, here we are again. <laughs> so. I, I, I also think it's odd. They're getting all up in their in an ire about this one but they have rubber stamped one no bid contract after another all year. And again, this involves Chantel Brown, who has announced she's running for Marsha Fudge's Congress seat. Right. And it's, it's like, well, how much accountability can we count on from you when you've been a rubber stamp for questionable contracts? Anyway, it, it, interesting, interesting, unexpected development, but maybe they'll, they will take step two and start keeping track of when contracts expire. Well, we'll see at their next meeting. <laughs> this week in the CLE. The iconic Tangier restaurant in Akron is ending its long run. What's LeBron James' role and what will become of it? Lord Johnston, the Tangier is just one of those things that's been there forever. Everybody knows about it, even if you're from Cleveland, but it's done. It kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah, I had my high school senior awards dinner there. That, that's about the only time I've been into the Dan- Tangier, but you're right. It is an what, icon. What award did you get, Lord? What award oh, did you get, Lord Nelson? I, I, I honestly, I'm going to have to go look up my yearbook now and report back to you later. Um, <laughs> but the foundation, the LeBron James Foundation, is going to turn the Tangier into a place called House 330, which is going to include spaces dedicated to providing resources for members of the community and students and families at the I Promise School, which uh, LeBron James opened in 2018 in partnership with Akron Public Schools for some of the city's most at-risk children. So this sounds really cool. It's going to include many corporate-sponsored rooms, including a financial center with J.P. Morgan Chase, where Chase bankers will offer financial advice and resources to families, a sports complex from Dick's Sporting Goods, fast casual dining with Old El Paso, and the J.M. Smucker Hometown Hall, which was an indoor um, dining and gathering space for family meals and community conversations. There's plans for retail, a job training area, coffee bar, lounge, ice cream parlor. Um, this is all slated to open in 2022. And, and I am speaking as an Akronite here, but you've got to give LeBron credit for not just opening a public school, but considering all the other ways that kids' lives can be improved. Yeah, it's a, it's a cool use of the building. And as the owner said, it's bittersweet. It's bitter because they're closing after all these years, but it's sweet because of what's going to become of it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Do we finally understand Governor Mike DeWine's position on the death penalty? Jane Cahoon, we spent an hour talking to him this morning, and one part of the conversation involved the death penalty. We've been chasing him for two years to kind of lay down where he stands. No one has been executed during his term, and when you ask him, he grins and shows some pride in that fact, but hasn't stated exactly what he feels. We got a good answer today, though, that I think kind of closes the book on our quest. Yeah, Chris, you, you finally got him to talk about this in a different way that I thought was fascinating. Now, he still isn't stating, you know, 
his personal position on this. I don't think we'll ever get that. But uh, so he he started off, uh, you know, by and I thought, oh, he's going to say the same thing. He said, you know, the moral justification for the death penalty is that it's a deterrent and. Um, but there's such a delay between the time someone is, you know, the crime is committed and and when it's carried out that 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 argument's harder to make. And we've got this de facto moratorium because we can't get the, the drugs for lethal injection, la, 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 la. And then he just said, you know, he pointed out that he he was an architect of the death penalty in Ohio. And and then he said, well, you know, you you take an oath to follow the law. But then he just said, you know, there's only so many causes a governor can have at one time. And then he he pivoted to, you know, other ways that he seems to think are are more effective at saving lives. And he went right into his strong Ohio bill, a portion of which would target violent repeat offenders who shouldn't have guns. And he just seems so passionate about this. He talked about how every day we're hearing about a child who's killed in a crossfire. And um, he said, you know, I, I don't know why anyone would be against this. Um, and he just said, you know, capital punishment is such a divisive issue. It, it just sucks all the air out of the room when you talk about that. But let's talk about things like getting guns out of the hands of violent offenders and putting them, away, you know, throwing the book at them. And I mean, I realize this is tied uh, into this bill with the other gun reforms that the legislature is just, it's going nowhere. So there there was some frustration there. But I just thought it was interesting how he said, you know, capital punishment kind of sucks all the air out of the room. Uh, and so let's concentrate on these other issues. Yeah, I, I mean, it really did. It, it, we, we tried to tie him down and he basically said, look, if I if I do that, then that gets all the attention. And I, you know, I have, I, and, and the idea that you can only have so many causes as a governor, <laughs> that, but it's true, right? I mean, you know, he's got, right. well, he's got COVID, uh, you know, involuntarily, he's got his children's uh, pushes and things, but, but he was very matter of fact about, about it. And, and, you know, in the end, he doesn't have to take a position because on the mechanical side, it's dead in the water until the legislature comes up with a new, death penalty uh, method. So I, I, I appreciated it. It took a couple of times to get him to find this. Yeah, yeah, you really had to prod him. But uh, <laughs> but I was like, wow, he's he's going somewhere with this. Yeah. Yeah. I think we got more out of him on this than anybody uh, ever has. So, so a salute to Mike DeWine. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the new Cleveland cap on what food delivery services can charge restaurants? Chris Wernaski, until uh, we started reporting this, a couple of our reporters, Mark Bona, were pointing it out. I had no idea how badly the food service delivery companies were gouging the restaurants for the food they were delivering. It, everybody has looked at delivery and takeout as a way to keep them alive until the end of the pandemic. But then they were paying ridiculous amounts of money. Cleveland City Council has taken this up. The mayor has signed it. So what is the new cap on what they can charge? Right. It's almost like companies in Silicon Valley are sleazy and taking advantage of a pandemic. <laughs> uh, yeah. No. So Frank Jackson on Tuesday signed this some temporary restrictions on these uh, third-party delivery fees that these third-party delivery services can charge. And um, they basically, I, I believe they capped the services at, at, 15, at 15% of the food bill, which, you know, there were some, some were being charged up to uh, 30%, which is 
you know, really a lot of money if you're, you know, if you think about what that would be on like a 40 or $50 food bill on, you know, and, you know, plus tipping and, and all the things that you're, you should be doing for your delivery drivers. Um, so, you know, we joined uh, a number of cities that are, are sort of addressing this issue that, that companies like DoorDash, uh, Grubhub, Postmates and Uber Eats are, are doing as, as more and more people are, are, are getting deliveries. You know, I think most people are, are trying to get deliveries because they think, well, we're helping these restaurants and, and, you know, we're, we're staying home and trying to be safe. And, and really it's the restaurants that suffer from this more than I think the consumer does. So, so, you know, this was a good move. And I think, you know, hopefully that this will help the bottom lines of, of some of these restaurants that are, that are really struggling right now without any, any, you know, updated stimulus from the federal government or the state. Yeah, I mean, elected officials have pleaded with people to take advantage of it. How many times did Mike DeWine and John Houston said, look, go to your local restaurant, get takeout, get it home delivered. They need your help, frequent them. But in the background, they're being gouged in a way. And 30% is ridiculous. I mean, right. It's just you hear that amount. It's like, okay, no restaurant, restaurant margins on meals are so thin to begin with that that would just eat them up. And so, you know, it's a nice, nice job by Cleveland city council to get this done. And and one thing you have to be careful of is that, you know, there, there are some apps that actually advertise zero delivery fees. But if you look at, if you look at what they're charging per food item compared to like, go to the, go to the restaurant's website and see what their, the, the price for the food is on their menu directly. And then go to the app and see what they're charging. They build the price of the fees into the individual menu items. And so it's a little, it, you know, it's kind of a shell game that they're playing saying, well, we're not, we're not charging delivery fees, but, but the price is built in somewhere. And so you have to be kind of careful. I, my advice is I, you know, use Uber Eats to find out what restaurants are close to you and then call the restaurant and order from them directly. And, you know, that way you're cutting out this middleman. And, and, and you're helping the restaurants, uh, you know, it, more directly, uh, you know, if, if you, you know, if you feel safe doing that, but, you know, try to avoid using these apps as much as you can. Some people have suggested that the companies, now that they can't get the high rates, might leave. It'll be interesting to see if that happens. And others have wondered why Cleveland doesn't follow the path of Beechwood and hire people to deliver it themselves. One, that would be a monumental task for a city like Cleveland, which doesn't have extra cash. Mm -hmm. And two, you could argue that that's anti-competitive in some ways, that there is a role for Uber Eats and these companies to deliver the food. It just should be done in a way where everybody can profit. The restaurant, Uber Eats, the people at home getting the food. Uh, But it'll be interesting to see if other suburbs follow that uh, path. Yeah. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What will be the new giant Sherwin-Williams banner where we once had a giant banner of LeBron James? Lord Johnson, I think the one everybody will always remember is the one with LeBron James' hand outstretched with the chalk falling down, even though we've had a bunch probably since then. But there's a new one coming. What is it? Yeah, I had to think about what was there right now. So this banner uh, is going to be 210 feet by 110 feet. It's huge. It's on the... um, eastern side of the headquarters of Sherwin-Williams and currently shows a mosaic of photographs submitted by Cavs fans and Clevelanders. They make up a rendering of that gardens of transportation art deco statues on the Hope Memorial Bridge. And that's been up since October, 2018. But the plans for the new one 
show seven hands of people of different ethnicities placed on a basketball. One hand prominently features a championship ring and the slogan in white letters against a black background says for the love for the land. So the Cavs on Friday are going to ask the planning commission to sign off on this new banner and then it could hang in mid-January. And the planning commission has to sign off on banners this large, just as a matter of course, people can't just hang any kind of banner out there. That would make sense to me. I, I, I'd have to ask Eric Heising for the exact uh, reason they have to go through the planning commission. But yeah, I mean, this is an icon of the city. And like you said, everybody remembers that LeBron arms outstretched one. So they don't want just right. anything going up. So today it's your turn for the question Chris asked. <laughs> you don't know the answer to. Why, why do the Cavs get to choose what hangs on the side of the Sherwin-Williams building? Um, that is a really, really good question. <laughs> I can tell you that the design for this came from the Cavs creative director, Daniel Arsham, who we talked about a few weeks ago on this podcast. He's a graphic artist, or he's like the team's um, overseeing person for anything visually that represents the team. So um, this is this first, at least, you know, public thing that, that I'm knowing of that, um, that this, this uh, new creative director is doing. So that's pretty cool, at least. Yeah, it is. That the the hiring of that artist is is interesting. It's gonna be it, it, how that progresses over the next couple of years of the first team to do that, and how that changes the the imagery we get there. It'll be fun to watch. You're listening this week in the CLE. We have filled up another half hour. I have a feeling we'll be talking about more of our Mike White conversation in the days to come. It was uh, it's Mike always wine. Mike wine. <laughs> I said Mike White. Did I, did I say Mike White? Yeah. I've still got Nina Turner on the brain. I, um, I, I, I think you misheard me. But you got to give credit to the guy. He constantly stands in and takes the questions. We just, you don't normally see that. Usually you see people that are kind of cloistered away and not transparent. Yeah, he's not defensive at all. No, no. I, I, I look, I, you know, we all have people we deal with in our jobs that, you know, some you just don't want to deal with, but you do because you have to. And then there are people like him. I like dealing with Mike DeWine. He's a fun guy. Uh, he has a sense of humor and he, he gives as good as he gets. So it was, uh, it's always fun to talk to him. 